Ashley Easter. And I'm Charlie Grantham, and you're listening to Serendipity, the podcast where we explore everyday magic all around us. Welcome back to Serendipity. I'm Charlie and Ashley's here too. Hey. Um, we actually have a really special guest today. Um, Addison Saviors is here. Um, Hi. Addison, we're so excited to have you. We have been, um, I, I know this is going to be a good episode because the technology issues that I've had are just like for 30 minutes, it's just been constant <laughs> technology issues. So I feel like it's because you know, it's like you're going through something and then it's like, because you have something good on the other side, I'm like, this is a good episode because the of dark but, forces tried to stop us, but they, right. they will not prevail. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Addison and I met about a month ago, we were saying, I, well, I was saying, I feel like it's been more than a month, but it's literally been like a month. Um, and she's just so cool. I was like, oh my gosh, like you should come on our podcast. Like I, I predicted that her and Ashley, like you and Ashley would be like, let's hit it off and you have. So I was right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we are just so excited to have you. Um, just to like start it off, Addison has an Instagram called Divine at Every Size and we'll include that in the show notes so you can follow her. But I think just for starters, Addison, we'd love just to hear just kind of about you and um, kind of what you're doing. Um, I know you're in school right now. So kind of telling us some about that and kind of telling us some about kind of your like mission with Divine at Every Size. Yeah. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. I'm so excited. Um, I'm Addison for all you listeners. And I have been studying theology for near up to six or seven years at this point. I did my undergrad degree in religion um, in theology, and now I'm getting my Master of Divinity here at Boston University School of Theology for a Master of Divinity as well, studying theology. So yeah, I've kind of been in the theological realm for almost all of my life. I grew up religious and noticed a lot of issues in the church, which kind of led me to study theology. Um, and then it wasn't until my, in between my junior and senior year that I started to do some research on the correlation between eating disorders and Christianity, which led me to start Divine at Every Size. So kind of the story behind that is I had been diagnosed with two eating disorders summer of 2020. I went home from COVID, for COVID, everyone was sent home from college, and I went home and was kind of pushed to start my recovery journey. So I started seeing a dietitian. I was diagnosed with two eating disorders, and I started my recovery journey. And a few months after I was diagnosed, I was looking on Pinterest of all places for like an inspirational quote or something that would, you know, push me along in recovery. It was like kind of, it was kind of a down week, I think. And so I think I typed in like, like anorexia inspiration or like something, something like that. And it wasn't religious. When I typed in, I remember it wasn't religious. And what came up was like a few inspirational quotes. But when I was scrolling came up all of these very religious posts how to lose weight God's way 
10 Bible verses to help you beat binge eating. Um, do this Adam and Eve diet, um, how to pray effectively for weight loss, like all of these horrific things. And I was like, oh my God. And so I started looking into all the stuff and I realized just how correlated the diet culture that I was trying to get away from in my eating disorder recovery was tied with Christianity. And I started uncovering all of these like Christian diets. There's hundreds of them. And even though that those Christian diets were not present in the churches that I grew up in, a lot of the same theology was. Things that juxtapose self-control as a fruit of the spirit with the sin, deadly sin of gluttony. And things that showcase how fasting for 40 days can make someone thin and it's seen as a holy thing. And all of these kind of very present theological themes were being used for diet culture. And what I found is that often when people are doing these for religious reasons, it develops disordered eating patterns because when you restrict your food, when you're doing these long-term fasts, it creates disordered eating patterns. But because people are doing them for what they think, they're doing it for God and these diets and this fasting, whatever is God ordained, they don't get diagnosed because people think that if they were to fail this Christian diet or fail this fast, they're failing God. So that led me um, in my senior capstone for my undergrad stuff too. My senior paper was titled um, The Religion of Christian Diet Culture. Mm-hmm. And I looked at Christian diets and how they present themselves theologically and why they're harmful. And I broke down themes. I broke down Bible verses. I broke down everything that I could find and then proposed in the second half of my paper what churches should do instead which um, I said at the time and I still mainly believe in is intuitive eating and this practice that was rooted in my eating disorder recovery um, that is a secular uh, principles and practices of eating but is really really deeply theological so so divided every size came about because I started to post um, on my personal Instagram some findings as I was writing my capstone and I was shocked by the amount of people who were like one I had no idea that this existed and two like I would love to learn more about it so as to not make my page. I wanted to like post about it every day. I was very passionate about it at the time. And I made this separate account, um, which was originally called body positive theology. And then I switched it to fat liberation theology, but then Instagram told me that that was too offensive. So I had to change it again. And I changed it to divine at every size. Um, so that's kind of where divine at every size came from was me finding out all of the stuff about diet culture and Christianity and how they're intertwined and wanting to educate people about that, both in theology and in the world. Wow. wow. As I'm hearing I, that, like, I, I have heard of some of the Christian diets. I didn't realize there were that many, but I always heard people talk about like the Daniel diet, like that was yes. a good one I heard of. Um, I know Bill Gothard and like some of the culty religions, like he's, I think he, 
he was removed from his platform, but now he's doing some sort of like bread diet or something like that. It was last I heard and just like some weird stuff. And it's, yeah. but I, I didn't realize that it, there were like hundreds of yes. diets. I could rattle off the Daniel diet, the Genesis 129 diet, the Adam and Eve diet, the lose weight God's way diet. The, if you haven't heard of Gwen Shamblin Mm-mm. and oh my gosh, you both need to look up Gwen Shamblin's and they did an HBO documentary called The Way Down, but way is in like weight, not like W-A-Y, oh. The Way Down. Gwen Shamblin had, not only did she come up with this Christian diet, you know, book, she started a diet church and the whole point of the church was for people to lose weight. And is she the one with all the makeup and the big blonde hair? There it is. Okay, there it she is. sort of looks like a more modern Tammy Faye Baker. Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And she, I mean, her books, her church, half a million people were part of this church. Like this, they would go and promote this diet everywhere, and it was so so popular. It ended up, I wish, in the documentary on HBO Max that they talk about more like this specific diet and diet church because once it kind of like got really, really popular, it kind of turned into this like cultic Mm. situation and it kind of moved away ironically from the, not necessarily the diet stuff, but like the way they were promoting it and really became this like kind of cultic, the person who is narrating the HBO Max documentary calls it a cult. Mm -hmm. And anyway, you both have to watch the documentary. Gwen Shamblin ended up dying um, in a plane accident because her husband uh, had his pilot's license, but they died in a plane accident. Try not to laugh because the plane was overweight and they were flying like from one vacation home to another vacation home and the plane was overweight and it crashed and like their whole family died including that's so ironic I mean it's sad they died but that is like the most ironic I mean um, what a what a news headline right there I know like yeah she caused a lot of harm so not only are there Christian diet plans that people do um there's diet churches that exist and even like I recognized in my own church we never did any like Christian diets but we would do like biggest loser diets at the beginning, like every January is like a congregation wide initiative. And it was so, um, so apt, like for Lent, for mm. people to give up like food for Lent. Mm-hmm. And I did that in my eating, like in my disordered eating pattern and days, I would give up food for Lent because no one could challenge me. I could say I'm giving up bread or I'm giving up carbs. Mm-hmm. And because it's disguised under spiritual piety, I'm doing this for God, no one can challenge you. So that's also something that I looked at in my paper was what happens when people do things for religious reasons or supposed religious reasons, and it cultivates disordered eating practices. But again, people think that they would be failing God. And a lot of times things don't get diagnosed and or even recognized as disordered eating because it's disguised under this like Christian theology and theological like thinness as holiness and as health narrative 
Yeah, I, this is so fascinating. I, I feel like it's something I didn't even think about until I met you. And, um, you know, the Daniel fast was really big in the churches. Like I think I, ma- I mainly went to non-denominational churches growing up. Um, I did go to like a Southern Baptist church for a little bit. I can't remember. I was like kind of young when I went there. So I can't remember if they did like, um, like the Daniel fast or anything, but that was, I remember the Daniel fast was like a big, a big thing that like, um, my parents would do with the church and like, it was like every year at the beginning of the year. Um, I've actually heard of people who do it like once a month for like a week at a time, which is like, I mean, either way anyway. Um, but I guess I was actually thinking about this the other day a little bit. Um, and this, it might be a little off topic too, but like when you like these fast, like that, like, like the Daniel fast is kind of like what I was thinking about. Um, it's almost like when you're like depriving yourself or like you're depriving someone of something, um, especially food related. I think about like how um, like reality shows, I've, I've heard a lot about how they will like deprive people of food. Um, and so that's kind of what creates drama because like when you're hungry, you're hangry and because you need food to like, I mean, physically, like mentally, whatever. Um, and so I just also wonder how that plays in if someone is like being deprived of like nutrition, um, how that like, um, cause it's supposed to be like a, I don't even remember the point of fasting, but I feel like, I think I remember it, the way I was taught is like, oh, when you like give up something, your brain is like clear to God, to like word or like God, whatever. But it's like, actually, like, I feel like you're more likely to like probably listen or like just kind of do something you wouldn't normally do because you're like being deprived of nutrition. Um, It's like the cult um, thing where they try to deprive you of sleep because you can't function properly. And so if you're depriving of food, like, like you, you can't think straight because right. Yeah. 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 That is so interesting. Fasting is biblically based because Jesus fasted um, for 40 days while he was being tempted by Satan and it supposedly make him, made him closer to God. However, people often forget that everything, almost everything in the Bible is a metaphor or an allegory and is not literal because of superhuman person fasted for 40 days, he would not be alive. Um, so it's biblically based for just the reasons you said, Charlie, if people try to be closer spiritually, but fasting, I think the difference also with these Christian diets is fasting, fasting is biblically based and a lot of religions do fasting, like Buddhists do fasting. And Mm -hmm. I, don't necessarily see a problem with fasting in general like islam for ramadan like the whole month of like fasting during the day eating food at night i don't see a problem with that whatsoever the thing with christian fasting is it's often not even for spiritual clarity it's disguised under weight loss and that is Mm -hmm. the thing that i came to the conclusion of of like also oh my gosh i can't remember in which book of the bible it was maybe it was isaiah I can't remember, but there's a line and a verse in the Bible that says, well, you know, fasting for food is maybe okay, but true fasting is fasting from injustice, fasting from being like continuing oppressive narratives, fasting from all of these things that have nothing to do with food. Um, Mm -hmm. So in the Bible, there's even evidence that fasting was not a food-based thing and it was seen 
of fasting from other things, but that is the idea that fasting um, came biblically based. But what's interesting is there's this narrative in Christian theology that says that spirit is good and the body which relies on food is bad. And that also contributes to this fasting narrative because, you know, if our holiest spiritual selves are good and matter and our bodies and food and sex, I mean, I think it's applied to so many things is bad. It cultivates this morality behind needing food because what are the things we need to exist? Food, water, sleep to go to the bathroom. Biologically, those are our birthrights and those are the only things that we are like physiologically tied to consume food, get rid of food out of our bodies, drink water, and sleep. So in the second century, as people were having debates between whether or not Jesus was human or divine, because, well, if Jesus was human and needed food, then what does that say about us? There was this debate that came up, which led to belief called Gnosticism. And it was started in the second century, and it was promoting this belief that the spirit is good and the body is bad. And even though it was deemed heretical a few centuries later and Gnosticism, you know, was dead today, I think it's very much alive today, still in these narratives of diet culture, of purity culture, of anything that deems the body is bad and the spirit is good, which is so, so present in these Christian diets. So I also see that link there, but I, that, I'm also stunned that that was something present in like reality shows makes a lot of sense though right yeah and, oh go ahead I was just gonna just to, to piggyback off that um I I totally get what you're saying about fasting and I think what popped into my mind is because most of my experience has been around like the Daniel fast I think what makes it so different from like some of the other things you were describing and I don't know like a ton about different religions um but I think a lot of that is like, it was kind of like that story in the Bible is like, there was like a clean group and like a unclean group or whatever. And so it's like automatically, I know it's a very restrictive fast. Like you can only eat these certain foods and it's like automatically labeling. These are good foods. These are bad foods when there's not like good and bad foods. Like it's just food. And so I think that that kind of clicked in my head when you said that, like, yeah, like I can see the difference in, um, I think like you said, there's like a ton of diets or whatever. And I think the Daniel fast is probably in part a diet that's just disguised as, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think all of these things are so well disguised that they're hard to distinguish, especially, I mean, I've studied theology for upwards of six to seven years. And I'm just now within the last like three years uncovering all of this. To the average layperson who just goes to church on Sunday mornings, every Sunday, and does what they're supposed to do and reads their Bible, listens to their pastor, how on earth are you supposed to know? Like, yeah, I, I think all of that makes so much sense. And before you said Gnosticism, I was like, yeah, I, th- I think that sounds like um, Gnosticism. And there are some interesting, like Gnostic gospels have some interesting things. And when you separate it from like just the, the body's bad spirits, good kind of thing, like it has some interesting tenets, but that part I think is a huge flaw in the system. Um, And then Charlie, what you were saying about just kind of like seeing as morally wrong. um, 
it made me think about a lot of these detox diets and the way people word diets, like you're detoxing something evil from your body, basically, that certain foods are good, certain foods are bad. And I think, um, I think there's a conversation to be had about the environmental or political um, or social impacts of certain food industries. Um, personally, I'm vegan, but to say like certain food is good or bad based on like morality of, I mean, even with veganism, like I, I care about the animals, but I realize that there's a lot of people who can't eat vegan. And so I'm not going to be like, you can't like if you you're wrong for that or something like that because it's it's just but um I guess sort of a, a question I'm sort of talking out loud is with these detox diets one question is is detox even a thing is that like a real thing that actually works um and is it actually good for you and the reason I kind of want to ask that question is a couple of years ago, well, I have an autoimmune disorder. I have ulcerative colitis and I was trying medications. Medications weren't working like I wanted to. Some of them had negative side effects. And so I heard about this detox for ulcerative colitis and, um, you could eat as much as you wanted, but it was very restricted on the foods that you could actually eat. And so it was like, I don't remember, like six foods. And you had to, they kind of told me going into it, like, it's only going to be for four weeks. And I was like, well, that seems like a long time. And when I got into it, not only did it not help my colitis, um, but they said the symptoms I was starting to have were part of a detox when I think it was actually just my autoimmune disorder getting worse because I wasn't on medication. Um, but then too, um, at the end, like towards the end, like it was really triggering eating disorder thoughts in me. And then when I got to week three, I was like, okay, it's almost week four. And they're like, well, you're not exactly where you should be. You might need to do another three rounds of this. And I was like, what? And I guess my question kind of in that is with people talking so much about detoxing and like certain things being bad for your body, like, is some of that just made up or is it like, <laughs> like what, what was happening? Because it, it didn't help me in the long run and it certainly didn't fix an illness. And I sure as hell did not feel closer to God during that experience. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will first and foremost say that I am not a dietitian. I've worked with dietitians for many, many years, but for anyone listening, this is not official medical advice. This is just my opinions. Um, I don't think that detox diets work unless it's something blatantly obvious, like celiac, cutting out gluten, and you automatically feel better or how right. our bodies aren't meant to handle dairy and the switch from breast milk to whole milk was never biologically supposed to happen. Right. And if you are like, wow, I feel so much better the second that I stopped consuming dairy, maybe that would be, but I wouldn't consider that a detox. I would consider that intuitive eating and eating from the knowledge of and wisdom of the body. With these detox diets, secular and Christian, the language that that uses of this detox sounds I mean, the exact same as an exorcism. There's nothing yeah. different between a detox diet and like exercising something out of your body. Wow. So 
that to me is the exact same language. And what happens with these ideas presented with detox diets, with Christian diets, and this moral idea of certain foods are good, certain foods are bad when you attach morality to it, is it aims for this idealistic idea of health. And we cannot control our health. People with chronic illnesses like you understand health is not something that we can control. We can be the healthiest we can be and still get hit by a car tomorrow. And now we are a double amputee. What does the version of health look like then? Like health is never this promised thing, but in diet culture, it is because if you just eat the certain way and just eat these good foods, you will be healthy, even though health is not a social determinant factor. And what happens when we attach health, especially in religious settings, is I wrote a paper um, last semester on how this idea of health replaces the idea of salvation. Mm. Like if you're being good and doing good and eating good, that is a salvific theological idea that is so like present in, in the way Christians often look at disabilities of being healed and mental illness and food and so it like replaces salvation and gives us like heavenly title which is so like not helpful at all and is really really harmful so I would say detox diets don't work and when we restrict any kind of food it sends our body into fight or flight our bodies aren't meant to handle restrictions. That's why weight is 80% genetic and only 20% like contributing of environmental factors. So the things that contribute to what body size someone is, for example, is determined by 80% genetics. Because when like my ancestors came in, came to America, like in the potato famine. Yeah. And when they didn't have access to food, the body tries to store as much as that as possible onto the body because we don't know when we're going to get our next meal. And it changes our genetics to where Mm -hmm. like people in larger bodies, it's not a product of fast food culture. It's not a product of laziness, laziness, (laughs) right? Exactly. Or like sinfulness in Christianity. It's a social response and physiological, like a genetic response to outside factors. So that's kind of what I see as the same thing as a detox diet, because we do know from statistics that yeah. um, a lot of people, this statistic is often used in intuitive eating realms. And I mm-hmm. kind of have a qualm with it because they still use it in anti-fat like rhetorics and narratives, but often people who do intentional diets or detox diets end up gaining three times the weight as they originally were because the body is so deprived Mm -hmm. of nutrition, of, I mean, of so many things. So a lot of people use that as like anti-fat narratives of like, you don't want to be three times the size of what you originally, you know, people gain three times as much. How awful is that? But I think there's something to be said about how our body responds Mm. when it's on a diet. And that's something that's, I think, come out of my personal eating disorder recovery journey and the work that I've learned of how much wisdom, intuitive wisdom, my body has. And when I think back to how my body acted when I was on diets, I was on diets for at least 10 to 15 years of my life. Like the earliest diet I started was in fifth grade. And I dieted all my entire life up until 
my junior to senior year of college when I started eating disorder recovery. And if I think about how my body acted through that whole span of time, the things that other people were experiencing things, the things that other people were experiencing, like regular menstrual cycles, Mm. having a lot of hair, like my body could not produce any of those things. And so even the idea of health that I was promised through diet culture and through being in a small body and through, you know, only eating these good foods, similar to you, Ashley, was never given. It was always promised, but never given. So I want to affirm that and and affirm your experience in that too, because Mm -hmm. I think food can be medicine in a lot of ways I'm not a like essential oils hippie bitch right right <laughs> I'm vaccinated and happily so <laughs> yes <thank you>. <laughs> 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 but, <laughs> but I think that food is not something to be feared yeah and I think mm-hmm. it often is an exorcism when looked at in detox diets One last thing that kind of came up, and I know, Charlie, you probably have questions, but I just train of thought here, like as you're seeing that, and I didn't see the results that I was promised in that, um, I have heard people talk about detoxes um, helping them in some ways. And I think like two things come to my mind and want to get your thoughts on that. One is if you're living a really unhealthy lifestyle and all of a sudden you unhealthy, meaning like you've never had a vegetable in 10 years or something like that. Um, if you start eating a lot of vegetables, you're probably going to feel somewhat better just because balance often helps the system work better than if you've only eaten Cheetos for the last three years. Um, So that could be a reason some people see results or temporary results. But then also I've heard these crazy stories and seen these pictures on Instagram of things that were detoxed and like, it's not just even food. I don't know if anybody has seen those Yoni um, pearls that people stick up their vajayjays to cleanse and detox their vajayjays. No. (laughs) So it's like, that cannot be healthy. Yeah. It's a little, almost like a cheesecloth thing. And they fill it with super strong herbs and then they stick it up there for three days. And then when they pull it out, it's got all of this yuckiness on it. And they're like, see, I'm detoxing because I can see this coming out of my body. And I'm thinking, girl, if you put a piece of broccoli up there, probably the same thing's going to happen because your body's like, this is not okay. (laughs) I'm trying to get rid of this. And so Sometimes I feel like the quote unquote results people are getting from detoxes, whether it's that overt or the other, it's you're seeing something happen to your body and you're assuming that because now my body's going into some sort of reaction that that means this detox is working when in fact it could mean that your body is like going into shock of like, this is not what's supposed to happen. And so I'm going to react to try to tell you there's a problem. And you're thinking, oh, it's reacting because I'm cleansing out. I'm exercising it of these toxins. Do you think, am I thinking along the right lines there? Or would you have any pushback to that? Yeah, I absolutely 
people often forget that our bodies know how to detox themselves on their own. Mm. That's what organs are for. That's why we go pee. That's why we execrate things. That's why we, our bodies naturally right, right. know what to detox and how to detox that. Mm-hmm. So I would absolutely agree that people doing these hoo-ha things um, <laughs> are the product of the product of a teaching that our bodies are not good enough mm. on their own. Yeah. Because like why someone would want to detox their hoo-ha, I don't know the exact reasoning <laughs> of that. But maybe a reasoning is, mm, well, maybe it smells a little. Maybe that's not supposed to. And someone's like, oh, that's embarrassing. Or I'm self-conscious about that. Yeah. There's a teach. I mean, how many things exist in our society that yeah. profit off of insecurity? natural hair growing in places that it naturally grows and natural body odor and I'm all for like shaving and deodorant like I'm (laughs) yes girl (laughs) there's so many things if we really break it down how many things exist the diet industry the wellness industry makeup how many hair products do you need how many anti-aging things like aging naturally aging is seen as bad like all of these things exist to tell you something with you is bad and I'll fix it And when I fix it, you'll be more desired. You'll be more liked. You'll be more lovable. You'll be good enough. Hmm. And really, I think it attaches itself to this deep desire that we all want to be loved and accepted. Yeah. Just do this. You know, if I just detox my Mm hoo-ha or I just do whatever, I just lose X amount of pounds. Like, I kind of see this overarching theme of... I am somehow not good enough and I need to fix myself. Yeah. And out of that, um, to the point of like, if someone's like not eating a vegetable for like 10 years or something mm-hmm. and, and they're eating Cheetos, one, I know a fair amount of people that are healthy or would be considered healthy in society's eye, like bodybuilders that rarely eat things that we would consider healthy, like fruits and vegetables. And something that I learned in my own eating disorder recovery with my dietitian is that actually all foods are healthy, even including Cheetos, because all foods give us nourishment. And my body doesn't know the difference between a McChicken and a a broccoli piece because it still is processed in the body the same way. So that is like, especially the argument for a lot of like health and wellness cultures of like, oh my gosh, I'm detoxing sugar or like, I'm not eating artificial sugar. I'm not eating processed sugar. Our bodies do not know the difference between a strawberry and a lollipop. Like hate to break it to society, but food is broken down the exact same way, regardless of whether it's processed or artificial or not. And the thing that I often go back to is people like, well, I can't believe that that's true with our current agriculture system. And I'm a proponent of like slow agriculture. Mm-hmm. I'm very much against um, our industrial agriculture system, which like harms animals, harms the planet, oftentimes harms us because of the chemicals that these animals are input with, mm-hmm. which is also present in our agriculture system for fruits and vegetables. Eating a chicken and eating a strawberry with our current, like if you were to go buy a strawberry from Trader Joe's or Target, nutritionally, it's actually pretty much the same because of the chemicals and the pesticides that are present in like strawberries, blueberries, lettuce. Like how many recalls have we seen from romaine lettuce recently? Like 
So that's something that I often bring up in light of conversations about health, especially related to body size, is if we're looking at health, even our agriculture system is not helping us at all because the things that we are putting even in our healthiest foods and what a lot of diet culture influencers like to call superfoods, which don't exist, like a superfood is like not a thing. Because our agricultural system is the way it is now, at least in America, it really doesn't even make a difference, which so contributes to this inequality of food access. Mm. Why is it so much cheaper to get a McChicken than it is to get a pack of apples or a pack of strawberries? Mm-hmm. So, which totally impl- like impacts the ways that food deserts are made and food inequality is made and the racial disparities in that. Um, so I think it, calls upon this much bigger questioning of how are we eating? What are the means to which we're eating? Who is harmed when we're eating? How can we be more connected to our food, which will then make us more connected to our bodies? But often people don't even think about that. They think of, well, fast food makes people fat and therefore it should be eradicated. Yeah. And I think what I'm thinking about too, with you, like saying all these things, I think the like I think a part of it too is like this, um, the idea that like so many systems that we have in place just fail people on a daily basis. And so I think a lot of people who go and do like a detox or who like go and do like a diet or follow these people on like influencers or whatever, um, I feel like there a lot of people are doing it out of like desperation because they've been failed by some other system whether it's like the medical system and it, you know, you know, just thinking I'm doing a master's public health, like there's so many like, um, like problems caused in America, like just strictly from like medical errors. Like it's just, the numbers are like absolutely the money. Like it's just like millions and millions and millions of dollars. So many. And it's like, again, like, I feel like I have known people who have suffered at the hand of like doctors or the medical system who then have went and tried to find like out of desperation because of this thing that was like done to them by like a system and they're just desperate. They're just like trying to find something to help them. Or like you were talking about like the things that are put into foods, you know, that like disrupts like hormones or whatever. And so they're just desperate. They're like, please, like somebody help me, you know, figure this out. I don't like, you know, I have these symptoms or I feel bad or whatever. And I think that's like such a big theme here is that it's these things, these like organizations or these people or the church taking advantage of desperate people who are in a very vulnerable place. Yeah. Because again, it's not, I'm like, I don't think it's like the individual's responsibility in the society that we live in um, to take responsibility, like for health. I think to an extent, there's like some things, sure. But I think because of like, we're at the mercy of these systems, whether like people like it or not, like, I mean, it's just a fact. This is like how society is structured now. We're at the mercy. Um, it is, it's the responsibility of these organizations, the government, like the people in power to like regulate this and to like, you know, um, I don't know. I guess I was just thinking of that. I think that's like a huge thing and it causes people to be vulnerable and desperate. Yeah. And 
And that's what makes people like, and it's not a fault of their own, the individual, like wanting to do a detox or wanting, cause they're just like grasping at straws, trying yeah. to like feel better. And, and I think it also goes to what you were saying. Like people just want to feel love. That's like a core human need yeah. to feel love, to feel protected. And it's like all connected. And yeah. that makes sad. me think, that makes me think, especially when you bring up health, like going back to like the Cheeto thing, we can say Cheetos are really bad for the environment. They're really bad in the way that people are not paid to make them and produce them. And it exploits people. They're bad for this. They're bad for that. They're bad for our hormones, you know, whatever it is. But I think something like really present, especially in like the diet culture and wellness industry with these like detox diets is instead of going, hmm, this is really bad for the environment. It's really bad for, let's just say animals. It's really bad for people. It affects our hormones, et cetera. Health and the way that health is perceived is always associated with thinness. So it doesn't become a conversation of how is this impacting the planet? How is this impacting exploiting people? How is this encouraging oppressive systems? It goes, well, Cheetos are bad because they make you fat. And if even we were to switch our idea of health and go, being fat's not a bad thing, I think our systems of agriculture would radically change because the things that are seen as morally bad wouldn't be seen as morally bad because it can make you fat. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that especially, I, I studied food ethics in like, I took a class on it my senior year of undergrad. And a lot of what I found is this conversation like that you and I are having, but they would be like, yeah, we need to get rid of fast food because look at the obesity rates, because look at this. And mm-hmm. you can go, well, actually fat people have always existed. And just because someone's fat doesn't mean they're unhealthy. And we can also say our agricultural system and our fast food industry really disconnects us from our food. It's bad for animals. It's bad for the planet. It's bad for the people, again, the workers that are being exploited at the hands of this like mm-hmm. capitalistic system and advocate for slow agriculture and or like natural things that do not destroy animals or people or the planet while also being like, and it's not because we want to eradicate fatness. Like, I think that even the ideas, oh, which that's my point was going back to this like detox diet thing. I think a big part of that too, in a lot of this like diet culture and wellness industry is fatness is like an seen as bad and it's often like an anti-fat rhetoric of not only will you be able to detox from this but you'll also lose weight like that was something very present in the daniel diet right and mm-hmm. often, yeah. often said like in the prologue addition to the diet of like this is so important as we see our obesity rates going higher and as we see this and this of like the whole point of even that diet was like to help people spiritually improve themselves and then it's always kind of tacked on at the end and you'll lose 10 pounds. You're like, wow, I could lose 10 pounds. So mm-hmm. I also think like our systemic definitions of health as associated with certain body sizes and body types, mm-hmm. if we address that, we will really see that at the root of a lot of these diets, at, a, at the root of a lot of medical systems, this anti-fat belief in this fat phobia makes it so like desperation that desperation that you were describing of like well I don't want to be that so I will do anything to avoid that right yeah 
So what would you say is a as good indicators of health? Is it like lipids and testing like your blood and like it, it's not what a person visually looks like because I've seen some really thin people that I know have been really sick because I've been a very thin person who's been very sick. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people who are in larger size bodies who seem very healthy and joyful and they have energy and they don't have a lot of health problems. So like, what is it that we should actually be looking at um, versus size? <laughs> mm, I love that question. For my belief, again, not a doctor, not a dietitian, health is subjective to every person. That's one of the first things that my dietitian had me do. I've also been a really thin person and be very unhealthy. And the first thing my dietitian did was what are your definitions of health? What do you want health to look like for you? Does that mean mm -hmm. that you're sleeping better? Does that mean that you do yoga one time a day? Does that mean that you have more hip mobility or that you can bend down easier? Does that mean that you're thinking about food less and you're like looking out at the sky more? And I think that when we tell people health looks like this, Health looks like your blood levels being this certain way. Health looks like, because health looks different for everyone. What if you have an autoimmune disorder? What if you have chronic illness? What if you're disabled? Like health, there is no, I think one of the biggest things I've learned is that there's no umbrella marker for what health looks like for anyone. Like maybe health looks like eating broccoli for me. The person next door to me could be allergic to broccoli. Well, that's not a healthy thing for them. Even this categorization of like healthy foods and not healthy foods. Well, some people are allergic to blueberries. That's kind of a yeah. bummer. Like, yeah. so that's not a healthy food for them. That could kill them. It's yeah. a poisonous thing for them. So I think like the things that I look for, for my own health, am I drinking enough water? Am I getting sleep? Am I eating in a way that I feel good in and that I feel good ethically how am I treating the planet in the way I eat? How am I treating animals in the way that I eat? How am I treating myself in the way that I eat? Especially then with the lens of diet culture and eating disorder, am I allowing myself to eat all the foods? What kind of music am I listening to? Am I journaling that? Like if I'm not journaling on a regular basis, I'm probably not in a healthy state of mind because health in my, like to me also includes like mental health and like how am I doing stress-wise? How am I doing depression-wise? What about my anxiety levels? Am I going outside enough? Am I doing the things that I enjoy enough, like yoga or art journaling or things like that? So mm -hmm. I think that has been one of the biggest takeaways that I've gotten from my eating disorder recovery journey mm -hmm. is allowing health to look different for me and different for everyone else that I meet mm -hmm. rather than having some kind of umbrella idea of what health is. I love that. It's so, it's all intuitive. It's intuitive and in how you define health, because I feel like it can be like, okay, what do I like? What are the things that I like to do? If I can do the things that I truly enjoy and find pleasure in, I'm healthy, you know, like yeah. if I like, yeah. So I, and I love that you said like, oh, some people have allergies. I feel like that's a good point. Cause I, I think about like I get migraines. And so there's certain foods I know that are like triggers for like my migraines. Um, and I, my mom, um, she doesn't get them that much anymore, but she used to. And one of her food triggers is like a red onion. It's a vegetable and it causes migraines for her, you know? And so 
um, it really is like such an individual thing. And for like, I think so much of like diet culture and like whatever to come out and say, okay, this is going to fit every single person. Like, and like you said, we're all different. We have different like genetics. We have different ancestry lines. We have, you know, and, and we have different like goals for life. We have different things we enjoy. And if like, I, you know, I don't want to run a marathon, you know, like somebody might though. So maybe like health, health is going to be different for me and, and yeah. them, you know, they may yeah. run 10 miles. That's not going to be good for me. You know, no, like I'm, I'm with you. I'm going to be at the finish line, waving the little flag. And maybe health looks like not forcing yourself to do something like yeah. that just because yeah. the diet tells you to, or just because you're supposed to be healthy enough to be able to run a marathon. Well, Right. Sorry, if someone's a double amputee, that's not really that healthy for them, right. is it? Like, right. 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 Yeah. Oh, I love this. This is such a good conversation. This is just so good. I feel like I learned so much and I I'm just fascinated. I love this. I feel like what you're doing, Addison, is really, really important. And I think it's really growing up in the Christian religion. Um and I I'm not I don't really consider myself part of it um anymore. But growing up in the Christian religion, I do, I think it's so valuable what you're doing and what like, you know, just getting your degree and like having these goals in place. I think that's just amazing. And I think, um, I think it's awesome and needed. So thank you so much. Do you have any like other questions, Ashley, or anything? I know, I feel like we could talk for a long time about this. I know. I'm, I think that that's all the questions on air. Um, (laughs) But I know I'm going to want to just talk to you separately because there's like, seven different rabbit trails we could go on but in order to respect our listeners time can you just tell us um again where people can find you I know you said that in the beginning but can you just let everybody know one more time yeah I have an Instagram divine at every size and linked in the bio of that Instagram is my personal Instagram if you want to follow along um other than that that's kind of it okay Well, it was so good to talk with you. Um, Charlie, you made this introduction. So thank you for that. Um, Addison, you're just amazing. And I've also learned a lot of things. And um, yeah, don't be a stranger to the podcast. We should have another conversation in the future. I would love to. Yeah, I definitely think we should do that. Um, But as always, um, thank you so much for listening. Um, We um, would love to hear any serendipitous stories. I think we're out of time today to tell yeah. any stories, but if you have a serendipitous story, um, what are some of the topics, Ashley? I don't know if- Yeah, um, tell us your stories those... about aliens or tell us your stories about many miracles that have happened in your life or really just any happy stories. We love to hear them so much. Um, yeah, and if you send in- Uh, a review for the podcast through Apple Podcasts. Take a screenshot. Hopefully it's five stars because guys, this is a five-star podcast. You know that. Um, (laughs) uh, When you do that, you can email that to us or send it to us on Instagram and we will give you in return for your review uh, a little prize. So it's um, some beautiful serendipity artwork um, that you can print that you can use as a background on your phone or laptop. And uh, you can do that by sending it to our Instagram at serendipity.pod or emailing us at pod.serendipity at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, I know that we've had a little break since our last episode. So glad to be back with you. New episodes are on their way and 
yeah, see you next yeah. time. Yeah, thank you again, Addison. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye.